There we go. Now we're recording. Um, so today, um, we're, so today's the Sunday, sometimes called the Sunday of Orthodoxy or the Sunday of the Triumph of Orthodoxy, uh, which gives us an opportunity kind of obviously to talk about icons. Um, so I say obviously, but maybe it's not obvious. Um, the specific thing that this Sunday commemorates is in the ninth century, kind of the final victory, if you will, uh, in the, the iconoclast controversy that was going on. Um, so there had been a previous apparent success, but then I think what happened was that a new emperor came in and he decided he didn't want icons. It continued for a little bit longer, but, but this is kind of the final victory. And the council kind of made their proclamation on the first Sunday in Lent in that year. And so it became then an observation that was held on the first Sunday in Lent every year. Um, previously, the Sunday, first Sunday in Lent commemorated, uh, I think, Moses and Abraham and but uh, no Moses Moses Samuel and then other other prophets I think is what the original uh, the earlier um, commemoration was so Lent started Monday technically no, no. Uh, well, yes wait what is the first yes yes okay. so last Sunday when we had forgiveness Vespers right so liturgically Vespers begins the new day so I can guarantee you no one started fasting then. <laughs> we all started fasting on Monday. But liturgically speaking, when we finished, actually when we changed the vestments and the, the cloths, the coverings during Vespers, that's when we entered Great Lent. Like that, if you want to put a pin on the moment, that's it. Okay? So what, what you have then is in, in Lent, it's kind of, it's sometimes a little backwards from how we think about things liturgically because... This is the first Sunday in Lent, but it kind of comes after the end of the first week of Lent. You see what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so even though, like, normally we think of Sunday beginning the week. Right? Okay, some work calendars don't do that, Monday beginning. Yeah. But most calendars in the West, right, begin the, the week on Sunday. And normally we kind of do the same thing with the tone of the week. We've talked about the tone of the week, the eight tones, and, and how that cycles through. Um, but during Lent, the first, like the first Sunday actually comes at the end of the first week or after the first, kind of the first week of Lent. And then there's the first Sunday of Lent. So don't get too caught up on that. Really. It's not that big a deal, but that's, that's an interesting point. I, yeah. Um, so it commemorates this restoration of icons, um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit today. We can talk about icons, but it's interesting how talking about icons actually leads to talking about tradition. Um, and so we can do a little bit of that too. Um, so the it's funny if you try and find a definition or description or some statement about icons before the Seventh Ecumenical Council, you you won't find it. It's just not. And 
I mean, not, they get mentioned here and there, a little, like, you know, someone will make a little comment, but no, like, was kind of... because the iconoclasm wasn't an issue at the time? <laughs> yes, it's because it was, in a sense, it was just given. Like, yeah. why do we even need to talk about it? Yeah. We don't need to talk about it. Everybody agrees, yeah. it's right? A, it's assumed everyone knows. It's assumed, yes, yeah. yes. And so, I, I mention that specifically because sometimes, I, I don't know what your guys' issues are, but I know, like, sometimes my own issue uh, when I became Orthodox or something I felt like I had to discover uh, was that kind of, like, well, where does it say that? Where's the authority that says that? Yeah. Well, if there was never a controversy, really, it's just assumed that everybody agrees, and so we don't have to talk about it. Yeah. Right? So, it's so one of the, I would say, one of the more accessible um, uh, kind of writings about the icons is that there's three treatises that St. John of Damascus did at this time, like at the time that this controversy was going on. Um, he was the son of, uh, I think his father was an official in the um, Persian court, right? He was not a Byzantine, like, not. I mean, he was, I guess, prob probably even ethnically. But he lived in Damascus, which was under the control of the Persian Empire, like an Islamic empire. He was, he was not, <laughs> you know. And so, but he's, and he's kind of then in the midst of a, of a, somewhat of, a, of a, a, a situation where there's a bit of a strong iconoclastic tradition in Islam, right? Oh, right, yeah. Because you can't show any <laughs> right, right. right. And yet, so he's writing this defense from, from that place. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's one of the more uh, kind of accessible... Hey, Father. St. John? Yeah, yeah. Damascus? Damascus, yeah. Sat in his cave <laughs> in the monastery of Marsala. Uh-huh. And just, I mean, it's nothing pretty famous. His cell is like a cave. And it's yeah, there. yeah. You can sit, you know, it's like you can see, okay, on that little lock ledge is where he slept. <laughs> this served for his desk, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking. I mean, in Marsaba, it's like this monastery out in the desert on a cliff. Yeah. But it was like, I mean, it, it, it actually was like liturgical central for yeah. things and stuff. And just sitting there and thinking, you know, I, I would be thinking about something else than trying to kind of write all that theology in this cave. Like, you know, where's the bathroom? I don't know. But it was just amazing. And so yeah. I think uh, all thanks, Father. Uh, Sava, who founded the monastery, he's still there. Mm. His, his incorrupt body is in the... Uh, and on the side, they have a stack of skulls and a thing like that. And one of the ones, those are skulls that once have been marked. <laughs> they have issues with their neighbors over the years. Yeah. Uh, the Persians came through and killed a few hundred, things like that, back in the 600s. But they still occasionally do that. Yeah, well. And yeah. they still see St. Savas from time to time. Yeah. Years, walking around. <laughs> That's fascinating. Sorry, huh. guys. That's all right. Thanks, brother. So... His, it's even even in his defense, the, the, the treatises, he wrote three treatises. Um, and it's funny because, um, like, if you read through them, or um, you could, it's very obvious which one came first, like, and we know which one came first. But then you can tell he takes that first one and kind of modifies a little bit when he gets some new information about the controversy back, you know, back west in, in Constantinople. And then he 
you know, maybe some people had some hard time understanding his point, so he clarifies some things. Um, and so each essay, I mean, there are, there are parts that are almost kind of copy-pasted from, from the first one that kind of show up in the second one, and the second one and the third one. Um, but they all three have a slightly different flavor to them. And at the end of each one, and I don't remember what the word is, but at the end of each one, he has this kind of list of quotes from the fathers, from previous fathers, right? So um, that back his point, right? And that was really, really, really common for these kinds of writings. Like if you were trying to, uh, you know, if you're trying to, to, to make a, make an argument at a council and you wanted to back up your position, you'd be sure and bring a big list of other authorities in the church who, that you could quote who agreed with you, right? Um, so it's interesting looking through those quotes because even there, you don't necessarily find the kind of silver bullet that maybe you want. They don't come right on They don't the come right... <coughs> now, a lot of his point about icons hinges, I guess you could say, or, or I say, would say relies on the idea that the son is an icon of the father. Right? An icon just means image. So it sometimes even helps just to use the word image in this place, right? So the son is an image of the father. We are supposed to be an image of the son. And so of course, I, and then, so there's this whole kind of chain of images, if you will. God uses, he talks about the images um, that are kind of air quotes, in the mind of God that represent or that are the plans that he has for creation. Like, those things have kind of a, I don't want to get too kind of metaphysical about it, but almost have a pre-existence. There are images before the reality of the creation, right? There are, if you will, and he's calling those things images. Um, he, he talks about how, um, you know, he does this good little passage about how images, you know, well, what is an image? If we're, if we're worried about images and veneration, first let's talk about what images are. Images, you know, are, are I forget how he puts it, but, but, if, but basically a, a likeness of, of a prototype, you know, of, or an archetype, let's say, of, of something else. But they're different than that something else. Uh, but they bring that something else to us, right? Um... And he says, well, what's veneration? So then he has this nice long <laughs> list of all the places in the Old Testament where someone venerated something besides God, which is a lot, right? And even in his own world and even in our own world, we can find examples of veneration that are, that would, I would say, yes, we could call that veneration, that are not, uh, not venerating God directly, but that no one argues are, are problematic. So, and I feel like for neither of you guys, icons are a stumbling block. Okay, so there's, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of reason to, to dwell on that. If you're curious, read St. John of Damascus. I would say if, you, if icons are a stumbling block or you know someone who they are, he's a good one to, to point to and go, okay, digest this first and then let's talk, right? Because he makes some points that, are like, oh, yeah, okay, I see that. You know, talking about, you know, when you're in court and you say, your honor, right? Or everybody stands, all rise. Well, pledge of allegiance. Those are all, in a way, they're very mild, modern forms, but they're all veneration. 
since that's not an issue for either of you guys, I say we, we plow on. Unless you have any questions about icons specifically or... Are there anything, um, well, this might be off topic, but is there anything else in the history of the church that was um, considered normal, yeah. but it wasn't an issue until later on? Yeah, let's, that's where I'm headed. Okay. I don't know how many examples I have, but as a theme, that's where I want to go. Um, I thought of one more thing, too. So one of the interesting things I, I guess I learned kind of recently is that there were, if you will, there were degrees of iconoclasts. There were some that said, well, it's okay as long as it's an icon of Christ, right? We can venerate those. But the saints, nah, that's not okay. And then there was others that said, no, neither of the icons. We need to get rid of them all. Some of them said, it's okay for decoration. Just don't venerate them. And St. John just kind of lumps all of them together and says, you're all wrong, and here's why. So um, uh, anyway, so I I wanted to mention that because I I didn't really realize that there were kind of degrees of this of the iconoclasts that uh, and it makes sense you know that as these movements kind of catch fire and build that there might be some that are more extreme or more moderate than others um, so as what I found in uh, in doing my sermon today for I, I didn't actually write that one obviously I told you who wrote it um, but I didn't know I was just gonna read it straight out until last night <laughs> So as I was kind of doing some prep and looking for, just looking for some inform, in, inspiration of what I might kind of want to talk about, I kind of I started reading more into, reading about icons, and, and every, everywhere you kind of turn when you do that, you hit tradition. And let's say tradition with a capital T. Right. Okay? Because we have these, what you might call pious customs, <clears throat> and then you have things that are tradition with a capital T. But, and this is where we get to these unwritten things, right? Um, there's a really good essay by Vladimir Lossky where he talks about this and he di- differentiates between what's tradition and what's not tradition. And he's coming from a place where, hey, June, bye. Okay. He's coming from a place where a context where there's a lot of talk that contrasts scripture and tradition, right? There's a lot of, <clears throat> you know, talking about, I think in Anglicanism, they have the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason, right? Um, I think in Roman Catholic, you have kind of scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, yeah. right? And Vladimir Lossky and he's flying a little above my head, but I think his point that he kind of gets to is the, the tradition that those writers are talking about is not what we mean by tradition. Because really what they're talking about is just another version of Scripture. And what he says is that let's call any kind of teaching with that essentially uses words to convey ideas, right? That's that's scripture. With a capital S and a ca- or capital H and capital S, it's holy scripture. It's the stuff in the Bible. But all of those kinds of teachings, whether they come from the holy scriptures or come from uh, interpreting holy scriptures or handed down through the years, all of those kind of verbal teachings um, or written teachings all are, if you will, of the same category of thing. 
Do you see what I mean? Okay. Whether it's a preaching or a written scripture, it's according to what Lasky's saying, it's essentially the same thing, right? You're you're passing along information. It's the content, Isn't right? The orthodox take on biblical scripture that that scripture itself came from tradition, basically, so to say. Kind of, yes, but I think. And, and I may be wrong, I may be misstepping here, but I think Lossky would say what we now have in the Bible as the Holy Scripture is the codified, written version of what he's calling Scripture with a small s. The entirety of these teachings. Okay? So I'm getting to what he actually says tradition is. Because when he got there, I'm like, oh, wow, that really helps. So... He goes on to say, so if that's not what tradition is, if that's actually still scripture, um, these, these teachings, these, whether it's preaching or, or writing, these verbal content right, of ideas, then what, what actually do we mean by tradition? And he says that tradition is not the, the content, but it's how you receive the content. Right? So the holy tradition then is the... The, 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 uh, the way that we receive this teaching, right? Now, let's unpack that a little bit, too, because even that kind of goes, what? Um, and and he, uh, let me take one more step with that, though. And then he says, and really what that is, is the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. All right? Okay. So. So, tradition would be the how. And then scripture would be the what? That's a that's a nice way. That's a nice way of kind of putting it, you know, in just real simple, yeah, good terms. I like that. Yeah. Um, so what that means, though, and I think this is really important as you begin kind of these final steps into the church and, and kind of hopefully anticipate a day when you're, you know, you're freshly new minted Orthodox, right, to help you avoid the the plague of hyperdoxy, mm-hmm. right is to understand really what tradition is, right? Um, it, yes, it is the, 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 the how, right? And I, I think about, for whatever reason, it helps me to think in metaphors. I think I've mentioned that before, like, whatever. But So the metaphor I came up for this is that sometimes we mistakenly think of tradition as essentially like the manual for opening a new franchise of orthodoxy. I've never worked... As you know, opening a franchise of a restaurant. Actually, that's not true. But I was just a, a lowly peon. I didn't actually have anything to do with the setup of or anything. I was just a cook. But I, I suspect that when you're ready to open your new franchise of Wendy's, Wendy's corporate sends you six or seven binders. Yeah. And they say, this is how you run a Wendy's. And it covers a lot of details. Like, you know, they, they probably give you a list. These are the three different sign vendors you can use these are where we need you to buy your cups from and they just and so it's it's essentially just you're just xeroxing you're making a clone of the wendy's down the street right and if and as far as a franchise restaurant goes i can see why that works obviously it works it's worked really well I, i can remember a time when i i could have gone into any wendy's in america blindfolded gone in, gone to the bathroom, gone to the front counter, ordered my food, gotten ketchup and a, a spoon for my Frosty and a, and, a, and a straw, and then sat down at a table. I could have done it blindfold because they had exactly 
like down to the millimeter, the same footprint, right? Consistent customer experience. Yes, yes, exactly. In fact, I remember being a kid, if you went to like a McDonald's, it was different. That was a nice McDonald's. That's what we called it, right? (laughs) It was a nice McDonald's because it was different. So that's not tradition. That's not what we're talking about. And actually, in another way, today's a great example of that. I think it's 983. So in 982, the first Sunday in Lent was not the Sunday of the Triumph of Orthodoxy. But every year since then, it has been. So, um, so that's, that's, so I, I thought then, well, what is a good metaphor for tradition? And what came to me is the blueprint, or I'm sorry, the DNA. The DNA maybe is a better way of thinking about tradition. It helped me anyway. Because, okay, so this is a pin oak. This is a pin oak and that's a pin oak. So even these two pin oaks that have a very, very similar life experience, right? Almost identical. They're separated by, what, 30 feet maybe? Something like that. But when you begin to look at them, you know, they have the same shape, the same form, the same branch size, their leaves are the same, but they're not clones. Okay, because they're actually probably planted plants, they may actually be clones. But you get my point, right? right? Yeah, yeah. They're, not, <laughs> they're not clones in the same way that we were just talking about. Actually, even if they're clones, by virtue of them growing, they're, they're no longer, right? even if they're genetically clones, by virtue of growing, right? They, they have taken a different, and if you take a pin oak and you put it somewhere different, it'll grow different. It'll grow differently. And if lightning strikes this one and shears off these big branches, now it's going to look even different, right? Um, So I think maybe for me anyway, thinking about tradition as the DNA, because how DNA then expresses itself is different in every every individual of that species. But you always, you could look at, you know, you can can look at at a pin oak and know that, oh, that's, I wouldn't know that unless I'd seen the leaves. But I know that that's a pin oak because I've seen the leaves. But you can look at it, whatever, you know, whatever animal or plant it is, you can look at it and go, oh, that's of that species. Even though it looks a little different than this other one. Right? I think that's, for me, that was a decent metaphor for what tradition is. But I also like your much shorter version. <laughs> the, the, the how, right? Of how we express these things. So, um, so what that means is... All of the things that, are, that were assumed in the beginning didn't get talked about, really. They didn't need to be written down until such time that they did. And uh, St. Saint, Saint Basil talks about, in some of his writings, the dogma, the dogmatic writings of the church, the dogma of the church. And he doesn't mean by that what we usually mean by that. It's interesting. What he means by that... Excuse me. Reminder to take my medicine. What he means by dogma, or the dogmatic teachings of the church, are sometimes called the secret teachings of the church. And they're not secret in the same way that Gnosticism is secret, right? They're secret in the sense that they're, they're reserved for those who are members of the church. It's not the public teaching of the church so it's esoteric in a certain way maybe in a technical sense Um, 
But if we, you know, okay, here's a, here's a great example. After we read the scriptures, we have the, uh, the litany of the faithful, where we remember the people, the needs of the people, and then we say, depart catechumens. All who are catechumens, depart. Depart all catechumens. Let no catechumen remain. Why? Because now we're getting into the mysteries. We're getting to the dogmas that we don't want you to be scandalized by. It's important that you understand these things in the right way, in the way of tradition. And you might not be ready yet, so we're not going to share them just yet. Right? It's easy to see that sort of thing. Oh, well, they're, you know, 